All right, friends, go ahead and grab a copy of the Bible and open it to the passage Kathy just read, 2 Samuel 7. Try to do our best to allow God's Word to speak from the pulpit on Sunday, so uh, kind of nose and Bible would hopefully be our posture. We're going to do a good bit of Bible hunting this morning, so you're going to need a copy of God's Word. Would encourage you to, uh, to bring it with you. It would be super helpful to not just depend on the worship guides for the sermon text, because I'm going to get you to jump around in your Bible. So if you have a copy uh, of the scriptures and a notepad, that would be incredibly helpful. As you're turning, quick commercial uh, Netflix spot here. Um, Men's Discipleship Weekend is coming up seven or eight weeks, uh, September 15th and 16th. Um, one of my uh, buds from Austin, Texas is going to be here leading our discussion, Juan Sanchez. He's a pastor that we've built a relationship with over an extended period of time. One of the things we've learned about dudes is you don't really like going away and sleeping with a bunch of other dudes in a random cabin where dudes snore uh, at all hours of the night. And so um, we've tried to make this like as, uh, as easy access as possible. So you get to sleep in your own bed. It's here. It's going to be in this auditorium. We'll do Friday night, then you'll go home, do your thing, and then come back on Saturday. We'll be done before ball game time. I think Clemson's going to beat somebody like 89-2 to two that week. So no worries. One of those out-of-conference silly games that they play. So um, sign up. Tomorrow the price doubles. So uh, if you do it like in the first three minutes of my sermon this morning, you won't miss much but the introduction. So go ahead and sign up uh, right now. This is like uh, we want all dudes to be here for this. We're going to talk about how to lead yourself, uh, come under the authority of God and his word, how to lead your family, the relationships that you steward, and how to lead in the church. So it's going to be super, uh, super helpful. We'd love for you to be here. You can find information on the website. Let me pray for us again, and then we'll turn our attention to God's Word. Our Father, we give you thanks that you speak. We thank you that um, each week when we stand in this pulpit, we don't have to um, devise some self-help strategy to motivate people to be moral. Like That's not our, our goal. We, we have a word from you, and that word is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that word is consistent and it reorients us and our lives and our affections. We thank you that uh, this moment, these minutes don't rise and fall on the basis of whoever's standing behind this pulpit, but they rise and fall on the basis of what you've declared to be true. And as we submit ourselves to that, you transform us by the power of your spirit. So this is a super exciting moment for us to think that we get to hear from you and we get to respond to you. And so would you help us to do it in a way that is pleasing to you, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm finishing a book right now called The Wager. I commend it to you. Um, I like these kind of historical narratives. The Wager tells the story of a fleet of five British ships that were uh, attempting to uh, crash the party, as it were, of the Spanish Armada. They sailed uh, around the Cape Horn, around the tip of South America, and as they crossed pa uh, past the islands off of Patagonia, not the expensive clothing store, but the country, uh, they were uh, uh, in a tempest in a, a storm for uh, what amounted to five uh, solid 24-hour blocks, and the ships all wrecked, crashed along these desolate 
islands. And as the sailors, some 400 sailors, were coming to their senses, now without ship and in such a desolate region, they had no food. The first thing for them was to figure out where in the world are we? We've been in a storm for such an extended period of time, now without our boats and obviously before modern navigation. We don't have any clue where we are. So kind of mid-stage of the book uh, tells the story of a few of these that are sent off kind of a, a raiding party to investigate, is there any food on this island? And then how could we get up to a high enough peak that we could see to get some sense of where the stars are, some sense of where these islands are pointing, and maybe we could orient ourselves to some continent that we're familiar with that could tell us, how do we get off this island? You could consider what we're going to do in our sermon this morning, that raiding party. We're going to travel up a mountain, as it were, and just get a vantage that we can look off and over to say, where are we? How, how do we understand our place and our relationship with God? And this, much like this uh, group of 400 sailors, is going to be really, really helpful because before you know where you can go, you got to know where you are. What, what's my place? What is the appropriate place for me? And we're going to place ourselves using David's prayer in response to God's great covenant promises. You might imagine our context if you're kind of dropping in in the sermon series. This is kind of like um, um, Tina Turner's greatest hits album for David. I don't know why greatest hits album Tina Turner comes to mind, but you remember when we used to do greatest hits albums and you, you get, kind of get a collection of the best of the best. Well, chapters 6 through 9 of 2 Samuel are, are kind of David's greatest hits album. They're a collection of the best of the best moments of David's life. Now, it, it really is helpful because uh, it comes right before some of the, I don't know what the opposite of the greatest hits album, but the worst uh, of David's life. We're going to enter that terrain soon. But this is some really good territory. This is stuff that David would be proud of. In chapter 8, we're not going to teach this text, but I do want you to just let your eyes kind of glance over the entirety of chapter 8. We get kind of paragraph after paragraph that my editors describe here as David's victories, right? And uh, chapter 8 is really summed up for us if you look in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. David made a reputation for himself. Uh, he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Salt Valley. That's a good day. He placed garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites were subject to David. Then the end of verse 14, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. If you took the time to do a little uh, geographical placement of chapter 8, basically uh, what Samuel does for us is track from north to south in the kingdom. David is victorious. The entirety of the region, David shows himself powerful. And the text ends here in verse 14. Why? Well, because the Lord God made him so. This is attributed to God's hands. The Lord is, as it were, in chapter 8, fulfilling the promises that he's made to David to, to make a name, to make a reputation for himself. And you can imagine positively, much like the sailors, these are dizzying moments for David. He has defeated Goliath. He's been anointed king. He's ruling and reigning. He's received these promises that... I don't know if you've ever had a moment where something comes to you and you're like, that's too good to be true. He's got these too good to be true promises. And now every time he goes into battle, he's finding that he wins. 
Things are incredibly good for him. And in the middle of this, we get David placing himself. And here's kind of a simplistic outline to the prayer that Kathy just read for us. So in verses 18 to 21, David places himself. In verse 22, David places God. And then in verses 23 and 24, uh, David places God's people. Okay, so that, that's kind of a, the, the outline of this prayer. And I, I'll explain what I mean by place in just a minute. He places himself, he then places God, and then finally he places God's people. So this will frame uh, our sermon outline this morning. But what I want to do is a good Bible reading practice. I want to turn our dids into shoulds, meaning I, we're not considering this merely from a historical record of what David did. But I want to exhort you and myself as that you should place yourself like David did. You should place God like David did. And you should place God's people like David did. Everybody tracking with me? So that's what we're going to do. So let's consider first, why did David and why should you place yourself? If you want to orient how to make sense of life. Let's read verses 18 to 21 again. David goes in, sits in the Lord's presence, and he says, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? What you've done so far, that was a little thing for you, Lord God. You've also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed these great things to your servants. So David, David orients himself by placing what is his proper place in the grand scope of what God is doing. I want you to notice two things about these, these verses. First, what David does, and secondly, what he says to orient, orient himself. First, what does he do in the introduction to verse 18? This is somewhat skippable, but I think it's incredibly important. David went in and he sat in the Lord's presence. Okay, let's consider that idea for a minute. Here we're talking, uh, kind of picking up this theme of the, the, the presence of God that would have filled the Garden of Eden, that walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Now, subsequent to the fall and the other side of sin entering the world, the manifold presence of God is placed. Okay. It's, it, 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 while while God, God's glory radiates throughout all that, he chooses to dwell to reveal himself in a specific place. And we've seen most vividly as they've been in movement that this is uh, in and around the ark. That God chooses for his glory to dwell specifically, his presence to be in the ark. And so what does David do when he considers the dizzying scope of God's promises in the midst of all this good that is happening? He chooses to go and sit in the presence of God. I think this is instructive for us if we consider the contrast of what was David trying to do at the beginning of chapter 7. He wanted to build God a house, right? If you remember. He says, I want to do something... And then on the other side of God's promises, he's content to sit with God. Not to do for God, but to be with God. 
I think this is incredibly unique if we think about for a king. And particularly for a king at David's place and time. This is a powerful king. This is a king who seemingly at this point can't do anything wrong. This is a king who's taking territory left and right. And this is a king who has in the background playing in his mind, God is for me and he's establishing my throne forever. Think if you were in that position of power, all the things you would be tempted to do for God. And yet here, the king is content to sit. Uh, the text doesn't tell us that it was with the ark, but it was with the presence of God. The king went in and he postured himself in the Lord's presence. Now Christians, just to step aside for a moment, what a far greater opportunity you and I have to do this very thing. While the spirit of God, the presence of God was placed in the Old Testament in David's day, now the dwelling of God, the temple of God, most perfectly was seen in the sending of Jesus Christ, God's son, who placed God, who came at a specific time and place to live among us. And subsequent to his death, burial, and resurrection, the spirit of the living God is now placed where? In the lives of God's people. We become the temple of the living God. Great news for you. You don't even have to go to a place to enter the manifold presence of God. The spirit of the living God goes in you. I think this is what it means that we would abide with Christ. This spirit of the living God who is in us that we would dwell, that we would experience that presence in a fresh and rich way. And yet, friends... How foolish are we often to neglect the beauty that comes from just being with God? Are you content, Christian? And maybe we take it one step further and say, do you desire to just be with God? Christian leader, has your motivation to do something great for God usurped your passion and desire simply to relate to God? If so, perhaps a moment of repentance is warranted. You have the ability to do what David did at the beginning of verse 18 and simply be with God. And what do we see David do as he is with God, as he sits with God? Notice what he says in the verses that follow. We won't reread this text. But it begins with this phrase, Who am I? Right? David holds himself up as he enters the presence of God as undeserving. Who am I? And specifically he says, Who am I that, that you've brought me this far? Calvin commenting on this text writes that, uh, that God has spared David a thousand deaths thus far and will surely spare him a thousand more. Who am I that in your kindness you have brought me to this place, that you've elevated me, that you've given me these promises? That's the second thing he points to in verses 20 and 21. He's finite. He can't see. So he commends God for revealing things. He says, these are things that are in the future. These are things that are in the distant future. In other words, they're things that I couldn't see. And you've been really super kind, God, to reveal them to me. And then he says he's limited. 
Like, it's not merely that these great promises were revealed to, to all people, but they were revealed specifically to David. You showed this to me, though, though I can't grapple with how you're going to fulfill this, how you're going to uh, send a king who would never die. But you've revealed them to me. So he comes into God's presence, claiming, affirming, I'm undeserving. Who am I? I'm finite. I'm limited. I can't see. I, I, I don't grasp the fullness of what you're doing. And yet, you have spared me a thousand deaths. You have brought me thus far. You have told me things that I can't comprehend, things that I could not see. If we put this all in a bucket, we might say, the, David enters God's presence and he does so humbly. He does so, he does so with humility. Look at verse 20. Even the way he refers to himself, postures himself in a place of humility. You know your servant. He refers to himself. Now think about, for a king, he's not making this claim anywhere else. His identity is not servant in this world. And yet here before God, David knows his appropriate place. I'm a servant. And if this is going to play out, look again in verse 21. If it's going to play out, it's going to be according to your word or because of your word and according to your will. I'm a humble servant. And if this stuff's going to play out, if you're going to do, you're going to do it not by my ingenuity or creativity, but because you said it and you can actually do it. It will play out according to your will. Now again, just a, a momentary aside to, to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, I think, intuitively would say, I know that to be true. I'm, I'm needy. I'm desperate. If God didn't act, I mean, how many Christians can say, God has spared me a, a thousand deaths as well. Your story that got you to this point is not on the basis of your creativity or maturation, I assure you. It is God's sovereign hand of kindness at work. And yet I would wonder, is there a disconnect in what you know to be true about you and what you actually express to be true about you? Do you, do you tell God enough in your prayers, in the songs that you sing, in the way that you speak, that you are a humble servant in need of mercy. Note that you can turn over, I'll reference it again in a minute, Psalm 8. I think beautifully encapsulates this idea. Remember in verses 3 and 4. When I observe your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. The proper place for a Christian in prayer is that of humility. And writers throughout history have commended this as a necessary agent for Christian maturation. John Stott wrote that pride is a Christian's greatest enemy and humility a Christian's greatest friend. Jonathan Edwards, and I want to build to the end of this quote, but I want you to listen to the way he, he seeds this idea. Writing in 1737 about the revival that was breaking out in Massachusetts, this is actually a good parallel to our text because things were going really well for the people of God at this time. And he has a note of warning in his sermon. 
The first and worst cause, he writes, of Christian errors that abound in our day is that of spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It's the chief inlet of the smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder the work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support of all other errors. And then this is the building conclusion. Until this disease is cured, pride, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. Until we address the issue of pride, think of Edwards were applying this, uh, addressing themes like anxiety or lust or insecurity, these are all putting ointment on the wrong issue. The issue is, do our hearts really believe what is true about you and I? This is why we sing songs like, when I survey the wondrous cross that says what? The one, probably my favorite line in that. I pour contempt on all my pride. Is this what your prayers sound like? Is this what the songs that you sing sounds like? Is this the way you counsel and care in your small groups? David places himself. Secondly, he places God. Places himself, enters the presence of God, does so in humility. Then he places God. Look in verse 22. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God beside you, as we have all heard confirms. Now, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing terms that I hope will be sticky for you. Uh, it's odd to speak of placing God. Obviously, what I'm not commending, what David is not doing, is taking God from a physical place and putting him somewhere else. But rather, he is calling to mind He's reminding himself of the place that God rightfully occupies. I think this is the reason Jesus commends this at the start of his famous prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, that's your place, hallowed be your name. Let's place you where you're actually placed. So it's calling to mind in the heart where God actually is. In verse 22 that is what David does. He contrasts his humble estate, who am I, with who are you? You're great. There's no one like you. No God beside you. Everything that we have heard confirms this. I think it's instructive for us here in verse 22. These are simple words. This is not exhausting a theological dictionary, nor is it formulaic. This is the type of effusive praise one might dote on someone they're pursuing in a dating relationship or pursuing for marriage. One commentator writing on this passage said, God impressed David. God impressed him. And so in the words that he prayed, in the songs that he sings, he expresses, God, you're really impressive. 
And he does it in a host of different words, different phrases, different terms. But he holds up the glory of God and is content to, to say, yes, that is true about you. The psalm that I, that I quoted earlier. Remember how that one uh, begins and ends? It's, it's one of these structures uh, that, that kind of has sandwich bread on it. Right? We get in the middle, this placing of yourself. How's the song? Uh, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's verse 1, and then I believe it's verse 8 again on the back end. The psalm begins and ends with placing God, and then in the middle, what is man? That you would be mindful of him. How magnificent is your name in all the earth? God's people throughout history, spend abundant time talking to God about God. They spend abundant time talking to God about God. Do you? Do you spend sufficient time, maybe even extravagant time, talking to God about God? Now, this is one of the places where illustrations become super difficult because if we were to apply this to human relationships, we might say something like kind of five love languages style, right? You're in a marriage relationship and you need to tell your spouse why they're great, right? And, and what hovers behind that is there's something, there, there's something lacking in them. That you're, that you're calling to mind. You know, the, the stay-at-home mom that forgets I have purpose and meaning and what I'm doing is good. And so the husband needs to, to enter with this, thank you. You're doing great work. I appreciate. Well, that's not what we're doing with God, is it? There is no lack in God that we are fulfilling with our praise. Rather, we are the lack is with us. We are reminding ourselves what is good and true and right about God. We're orienting ourselves because we are a forgetful people. I sure wish I had time to do more of this, but let me commend a little Bible drill to you. Turn to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. This will almost be a comical refrain because we could spend, we could spend hours holding up this practice through the totality of the scriptures. Like every time somebody gets it right in the Bible, they are holding up God as great. They're putting him in his place, as it were, positively. Exodus 15, this is the song on the back end of the Red Sea deliverance. Reading in verse 11, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead your people. You have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Who are you, God? You are the great God that executed our deliverance. Turn to 1 Samuel 2. You'll remember this one if you've been at CFC for any length of time. This is uh, Hannah's response to God blessing her with a child. How does Hannah pray this triumphant prayer? 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 and 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. 
My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts off my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Turn to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. The establishment of the Levitical temple. The building under King Solomon. 1 Chronicles 29. Verses 10 through 14. We're fast forwarding in our story, but David's response to the temple being established... He prays and blesses the Lord, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. And in the sight of all the assembly, David said, May you be blessed, Lord God, the Father of Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the splendor, and the majesty, for everything in heaven and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. You're ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name. Psalm 145. Psalm 145. It could appropriately be argued that the totality of the Psalms could be summed up in these first two points. Psalms placing yourself in humility and Psalms placing God in authority, his rule and reign. Psalm 145, headed in my Bible, a hymn of David, praising God for his greatness. I exalt you, my God and King. I bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever. The Lord is great. He is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Lest you think this is merely an Old Testament reality, turn to Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And look with me at the way Paul prays. You can commend the same practice in First uh, Peter chapter 1. The opening refrains of almost all the New Testament letters begin the, this way. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose in him beyond, before the foundation, I'm sorry, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. We could continue this pattern throughout the scriptures to show, to, to prove from scripture that God's people, those on the receiving end of God's promises, can't get over telling God how great God is. Which then, right, is press for us, isn't it? Like, were we to record your interactions and prayers, would they sound like this? Do your thoughts and words 
give the impression that God has impressed you too? Does the way you speak to God and speak for God to others show that you actually believe that he is great? Then lastly, David places God's people. So back in our passage this morning, uh, verse 23 of 1 Samuel 7, who is like your people Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out the nations before their gods, before the people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people Israel to be your own people forever, and you, Lord God, have become their God. This is not, this is not as an intuitive a, sh a shift for us particularly uh, more individual, individualistically oriented Christians in America. But I want you to notice how pronouns shift in this prayer from who am I to this outward facing them, your people, us, the collective whole. David sees himself as a part of a collective. God's promises being revealed to a community. To, to a group of people who are receiving the implications of this king who will never die. And in verse 23, notice this. He says again, the prayer's book in it, an, another who am I? This time it's a who are we? And it's not a who are we of like humility at this point, but it's a who are me of the exclusive beauty of God's grace being revealed to the nation of Israel. Who are we? The least of all people to receive these glorious promises. Who are we that you would, notice in, in verse 23, that you would redeem for yourself a people, not a person, not me, but that you would redeem a people for yourself. Some translations, that you would take a people to be yours. And then the language shifts to this, which is like a, 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 an Israelite uh, slogan, as it were. Uh, uh, you're their God and they're your people. Uh, you took a people to yourself. Most say this is like a, a, a marriage covenant promise. You took a wife to yourself to be yours. God took a people to himself. We see these promises extended in uh, Genesis 22. We see it again in Exodus 7. We see it again in Leviticus 22. We see it in Deuteronomy 17. This same refrain repeated. They're your people. You're their God. You took a people to be yours. And so David places himself among the community that will receive these great promises. Christians, do your prayers sound like this? Do others show up in your prayers? Do others, specifically others that you receive no benefit from God answering this prayer? Others who are outside of the scope of your family that God answering this prayer would bring more peace and harmony. But do you have... Are you extroverted in your prayers? And I think here's good instruction for us. 
Because what David does is he prays the promises of God for a community of people who will receive those promises. I think that's a really instructive way to pray for other people. Who needs to be on the receiving end of the joy, contentment, grace, beauty that comes from the promises of God? Who needs, the who needs to hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? Who needs to be on the... Well, they should show up in your prayers. Who needs to be on the receiving end of hearing the promises that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? They need to be on the receiving end of your promises. Who needs to hear and feel the weight of the promises that while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. That by faith, they can be grafted into the people of God. Do you pray the promises of God for other people? If not, you should. And so should I. Notice the way David ends this prayer in 25 through 29. If you were to kind of cliff notes this paragraph... David says simply, hey God, do what you said you would do. Do what you said you would do. Verse 25, do what you said you would do because you said it. And you keep your promises. Verse 26, do what you said you would do because if you do, your name's going to be exalted. Your, your glorious name's going to be exalted among the heavens. Verse 26 also, um, do what you said you were going to do because you're the Lord of armies, i.e. you can do what you said you would do. Right. So do what you said you'd do because you said it. Do what you said you would do um, because uh, your name would be exalted. Do what you said you would do because you have the actual power to do it. And then I think this is a wonderful note here from David. He says, the only way I'd have the courage to ask you to do this is because you said it. I would never be so stinking bold to ask you to do something like establish my throne forever and send a king who would never die, who would redeem a people into a city that would have peace and dwelling and righteousness forever. That's a ridiculous... I would never even think of a prayer like that. But because you said it, I've got the courage to pray it. Which is a really good core foundation for prayer. Turn the promises of God into prayers to God. Turn the promises of God into prayers to God. And Christian, this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we, the writer of Hebrews, will command, have all the courage in the world to approach his throne with boldness and to ask him for radically uh, wacky things. Things we would never think, like that he would perfectly glorify us in the presence of his son forever. Like that he would take the dead heart of a sinner and, and replace it with a heart of flesh that pulsates with life by the Spirit of God. That's wacky prayers. But you pray them because he's promised them. And you don't have to like pray it with kind of like bashfulness. You pray it with courage because the courage is predicated not on you and genius. Place God's what a What a great model for prayer and singing. What, what a great picture for us of the rhythms of the life of the people of God. And, and I commend to you this week, I commend to you in just a few moments as we sing and as we reflect 
to allow these rhythms to orient you on a mountain high enough for you to see the circumstances of your life with far greater clarity. The table of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to do just that, doesn't it? To place ourselves. I'm so undeserving that somebody had to die for me. I'm so needy that I can't create spiritual vitality on my own. Someone had to grant me an alien righteousness, something from outside of me to dwell within me. You're so great that you did that. Like that, that you saw my helpless estate and you sent Christ. Not merely to point out all the moral flaws of the world, but to enter it, to humble himself, to be obedient to the point of death, to die in our place. And you did that not just for me, but for all the people that are going to receive from this table in just a minute. You, as it were, made a really big table. There are promises that are sufficient. This is the, the loaves and fishes, right? He takes something meager and small and feeds a whole bunch of folks. And so as I eat, I get to remind myself that all you who are eating are claiming the same promises as well. And that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of confidence. So let me invite uh, the servers to come now. We're going to distribute the elements. And as they do, we typically take a couple of minutes of prayerful reflection. As the elements are being distributed, this is the space for prayerful reflection. Place yourself, place God, place God's people in your prayers, in conversation with children that are sitting around you. And then uh, we will receive these elements. As they're passed, these elements are for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are receivers of these great promises. If that is not yet you, we ask that you would use this as an opportunity to pray, to repent of your sins, and to trust in Christ. For the rest of us, we get to feast as undeserving sinners because of a great God who has made promises to a whole bunch of us. May that encourage and enliven our hearts as we reflect.